0: okay the story begins so tonight and tomorrow is a it's a special day the 18th of elul elul in general is very special elul is an entire month entire month opportunity to prepare for a new year to prepare for the yom hadin for the judgment day to prepare to greet the king in his palace on Rosh Hashanah, to coordinate him while he is now in the field, while he's accessible. And as Elul progresses, the preparation, the anticipation becomes more intense. The 18th of Elul, there's a few special things, one of which is it's it's 12 days before Rosh Hashanah. Each day representing a day of, you'll see how this ties into the Tanya soon. Um, Each day represents one month of the year. So for the first of those 12 days, we can reflect and correct anything we may have uh, mistaken or missed or messed up on, on Tishrei, the first of the month, the, the first month of the year the second day of these 12 day period etc until we can correct and amend everything we've done in the past cuz elo is a time for introspection a time for reflection but the 18 what else is special about 18 every rabbi's favorite number right hi hi right 18 is the numerical value of high of life the 18th of elo is the birthday of the author of the tanya So it's a day that contains his energy which is fascinating because his whole mission statement his whole existence was about bringing life He wrote the whole book of Tanya so we can live because pre-Tanya BT BT and AT BT, Judaism was about survival and then Judaism was never about survival, but that became the cultural attitude that we need to just survive, get the mitzvahs done, do what we can and whatever. And the whole point of the Tanya said, no, it's not about survival. We have to thrive. We have to live. And the author, his whole existence was about Tanya, what was about life, about living, about a true meaningful life. I'm not just alive because I didn't happen to get hit by a bus today. But my life has real meaning, has real purpose, has real soul to it. And that's the 18th of Elol's where we, when we take our preparations for Rosh Hashanah, we take it up a notch and we start infusing life into Elul. We start infusing soul into it. The author's name, by the way, the author's name was Schneier. Right? You know what the word Schneir means? Does anybody know what the word schneer means? So we, I, he's not the first person to have had this name. The name originated, well, there, there was a um, child born to a couple and they had a, the couple had an argument. Should we name our child Mayer? Which is a variation of or light. Or should we name our child Maor, which is also another variation of the word or light? Which one should we name? And they had this big argument. Which light, which variation of the word light should we name our child? And they were getting into a big fight. So they went to their rabbi. And the rabbi says, I I have an idea. Call him Shnei or. The word Shnei in Hebrew means two, two lights. So that's where the name Schneor came from. That's not, that wasn't the story with the author's parents but it was the story of the original namesake. And his name is Schneor, two lights because he illuminated the world in two very special ways. He illuminated the world by clarifying Jewish law. He was very into Jewish law and wrote a book on Jewish law that clarifies um, and codifies Jewish law with its reasonings. So we could have clarity in how to do the mitzvahs. And then he wrote the Tanya, which gives us clarity on why we do the mitzvahs. These are two luminaries, two lights. So today is a very special day. It's a day to kind of reflect in how we can infuse more life to our Rosh Hashanah and ElO preparations, greeting the king in the field. Now, as that relates to our chapter, we're on chapter 51 over here. We're on the second half of chapter 51, page 653. We started last week with a question. We say that God's presence rests in certain places, right? In the Beit HaMikdash, God is present. In the synagogue, God is present. In our homes, if we make our homes a sanctuary, a a miniature Beit HaMikdash, God is present. We also say that God is everywhere. Well, is he present in holy places or is he everywhere? If he's present only in holy places, well, then is God truly one? Not really. And if he's, only, if he's always present, then why do anything good if he's here anyways? Right, God is everywhere. No matter what, there's no place where He is not. Why do any good? Why go out of our way to 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 uh, open ourselves up to Him? He's here. So we gave an analogy. Last week's discussion was the analogy. This week's discussion is not the analogy. The um, the analog is that the right word. The thing that we are using the analogy for what's the word there's got to be an english word there's a hebrew word for it but i don't know what the english word is Met- metaphor well last week we gave the metaphor this week is going to be the subject the subject that, okay subject is a good word the subject that we were giving the analogy or metaphor for the there's no word in it for in english the referent no no I'm english word my for. Tongue. It. is there an no. english word for it it's
1: probably
2: a word. There is uh, and I'm not sure. And I'm, I'm searching my memory banks for the word because it's there.
0: In in Hebrew, we say there's a mashal, a parable or analogy, and then there's the nimshal. That's the English word I'm looking for. Okay. It's the opposite of a parable. It, it's what you it's what the parable is coming to teach you. It's the uh the the moral. Yeah, I guess so. Not so much the moral, the moral is more like a lesson, but it's Is it like a fable? It's kind of like it's. It's kind of like the opposite. Okay, we'll have to. Okay, whoever figures it out, let me know. (laughs) Wait, what's the Hebrew word again? Nimshal. Nimshal. Yeah.
2: You can ask uh, Professor Google.
0: It's too complicated. (laughs) There's. There's what there's. You know, you give an analogy to teach something. The analogy is not important. It's The analogy is there to understand something deeper. That, that's what the Nimshal is. Okay, anyways. Last week we discussed the analogy. And here's a quick recap on the analogy. The human soul and God very much parallel each other. So if we want to understand God and how he's truly present, at the same time we have to make him present, let's first understand the human soul because we're created in, in his image. Where is the soul? Just like God, the soul is everywhere in your body, right? Even your hair, which has no sensational feeling to it, grows, your toenails grow because there's a part of your soul that extends and gives vitality to the entire body. Where is your soul experienced? Your soul is everywhere, but where is your soul experienced primarily? Right in the head. By the way, when I looked up
1: "neem shawl," it does say the translation is "moral."
0: Moral, okay. The moral, moral of story. is story. Okay, so I guess more moral it is. Okay, thank you. So the. The mashal, before we get to the moral, (laughs) um, the soul is everywhere, but where is it experienced? It's experienced in the head. Right? We said that, and, and from the head, it's going to illuminate the rest of the body, which means. It's the, the rest of the body, what they're experiencing is more of like a, a radiance of the soul. In other words, the soul has no shape to it, right? Has no form to it because it's a piece of God. Has no limitations. So how could the soul, how, how could your ears, your eyes, your mouth, your nose, your throat, how could each limb have its own individual vitality? Because although the soul is everywhere, or you could say it's nowhere, however you want to look at it, it's experienced in the brain and from the brain it disseminates to everywhere according to the degree it needs to disseminate and according to how it needs to disseminate. Right? Now comes the moral. Take a look please on page 653. It's the middle of the page, right under where it says section two. Uh, the bold paragraph and figuratively speaking the way in which the soul powers energize the animal limbs is identical to the way the blessed infinite infinite one god fills the individual components of the worlds and energizes them right um where are we and these components are very numerous since in each world there are endless and limitless creatures Hundreds and millions of levels of angels and souls, as well as a vast number of worlds without end or limit, each higher and higher than the other. We think that our dimension, you know, we get so lost in our dimension, but there's so much more. And God is giving vitality to everybody, to everything, even the spiritual dimensions where the angels and souls reside. And they're getting a different energy than we are. Within our world, everybody's getting their own uh, personalized energy. But even though they're getting their own energy. But again, that describes not God. That describes our experience of God. In other words, God is everywhere. But where is he most experienced? That's going to vary. Right? let, Let me put it simply. If I were to ask everybody in this room, do you believe? in God? It's a yes or no question, right? Okay, we all, let's assume we all believe in God. If I were to ask everybody, can you describe what your belief in God feels like? You're no longer going to get the same answer, right? So the first question, do you believe in God? We all believe in God. He either exists or he doesn't. But in terms of how we're going to describe our beliefs, the way you feel it, the way you conceptualize it, the way I conceptualize it, we're all going to have different answers, which teaches us that, yes, God is everywhere, but how he is experienced is going to vary from location to location and from realm to realm, from dimension to dimension. Makes sense? Take a look at the next bold paragraph. We'll see it in the words of the author. The last bold paragraph of the page. But unlike these numerous components, which all differ in the divine elimination they receive, the essential core of the blessed infinite light is found equally in the upper and lower worlds, as in the above example, the essential core of the soul, which has no specific location in the body. So if you were to take a, so so God is found equally in heaven as much as he is in earth. He's no more in heaven than he is in earth. Right? He's everywhere. You're not going to get closer to God in heaven than you are on earth. There's this thinking of maybe we're better off not being alive because we'll be closer to God and go to heaven. But it's not true. God is everywhere. God is not in heaven anymore than he is on earth. God is more experienced in heaven. His presence is more felt in heaven than he is on earth. Which means every moment we embrace being on earth, embrace our mission on earth, by the way, we're being selfless. Wanting to go to heaven is very selfish. It's about my experience of God. Wanting to be here on earth is about bringing God here. It's not, even though I don't yet experience it, it's not even, a, it, it's not even about me. It's very selfless. Let's put it this way. We, we gave a similar analogy earlier, I believe in chapter 50 or maybe 49, I don't know. But what is closer to infinity? The number one or the number a million? If You had an infinite amount of money. You had a machine that printed money, right? A $1 bribe and a million dollar bribe, if somebody were to be bribing you for something, don't make any difference to you. Makes no difference, right? Which one's closer to infinity? They're both equally distant or equally close, depending on how you want to look at it. So who is closer to God, heaven or earth? God is everywhere. In earth, heaven, you could say it's like the million dollars. You feel closer. But are you actually closer? Experientially, perhaps, but essentially in, act, in, in, in reality? No. Nope. But then, question: why do we yeah. want Mashiach now? Sorry, one it's, more time? Why do we want Mashiach now? Because isn't that selfish? Okay, excellent question. Excellent question. The, the, the real reason is because God. that's what God wants. So it's not our want, it's what he wants. But then we want what he wants. But we're being selfish by wanting what he wants. No, that that's the most selfless thing you can do. When, when you're, you know, you could... St- you know, I, I, I mentioned this story once in the past, but I'm going to say it again because I, I just, it really sticks with me, really resonated with me. A couple of years ago, about seven, eight years ago, I was working as a dorm, dormitory supervisor in a yeshiva. And the yeshiva was, I was in charge of a bunch of teenagers, 18, 19 year olds, making sure they're there on time. And I was with a friend, with a colleague, we we're the same age. At the time we were 21 And we were supervising the dormitory. He had the morning, I had the morning shift, he had the night shift. The yeshiva was going away for Shabbat on a Shabbaton, Shabbat weekend getaway. They were going to New Jersey. And my friend was supposed to be on shift. I was gonna have the weekend off. And he was gonna be in charge. He was gonna be one of the chaperones. My friend got sick. I knew he wasn't going because he was sick and he told the rabbi in charge he's not going. And I assumed that the rabbi will probably ask me to take his place, I didn't want to, but he didn't ask me, so I'm kind of laying low, making sure he doesn't see me. <laughs> a, a young immature 21 year old trying to like. <laughs> I was uh, in the yeshiva and I walk right past the rabbi, I don't say anything, don't say anything, walk right past him. I walk out the door, and then I hear behind me, oh, Josh, quick, come back for a second. Shucks, he saw me. I come back, and says, look, Mendy is not feeling well, he's not able to come, can you come instead? He says to me, so I said to him, if if you want, I'll come. And he said, this guy was a really brilliant uh, educator. He wasn't just a teacher or a rabbi, he was a brilliant educator. He said, "He says to me, I don't want you to come. I want you to want to come. You're gonna resent it. Don't do it. I want you to want to come." I said, "Okay, In that case, I want to come. I didn't want to come. I ended up coming. I had a great time. But, um, but that line stuck with me. So uh, for for all this t- past many years, it's not that I want you to come. I want you to want to come." God says, look, I want Mashiach. I want you guys to bring Mashiach. But I want you to want it. And that's one of the reasons, by the way, why we study the Tanya is to help us get that passion. Because if we want what God wants, it's very selfless. Because we're in tune with his desires to the point that we're passionate about it. If you can be sensitive, if you cannot just obey your spouse's desires, but be sensitive to them, you want what what they want, right? But it's a very deep sensitivity. It's a very it's very meaningful. It's very selfless. Make sense.
1: Yeah, I think that's a very um, the the relationship to your relationship with your spouse. That's <laughs> I keep thinking about my wife wanting me to go to the musicals with her. <laughs> Which I don't right. really want to go to. She wants right. me to want to go.
0: Right. But
1: sometimes right. I do. Usually, and when,
0: usually when I do, I have a good time.
1: But I don't right. want to.
0: There we go. Uh, by the way, a, a mitzvah is, is very similar. How often do we resent the no, God says, I want you to do this and I want you to want it. Ah, and we do it. And it feels good. We feel like we did something right.
2: David, how could you not like musicals?
1: Uh, I like some musicals
0: yeah try an opera Uh,
1: it's like being dragged to a chick flake or something
0: (laughs) to the dentist sometimes goodbye now so God is again like we're saying everywhere and if God isn't truly everywhere, heaven and earth are equally distant or equally close because he's infinite, then what is the practical difference between heaven and earth? Or between holy and mundane? Between spiritual and physical? Between a synagogue and a San Francisco? No, okay. <laughs> um, but <laughs> this is being recorded. I'm going to get in trouble now. Um, what, what is the difference between a holy space and a mundane space if God is truly everywhere? So from God's perspective, there's no true difference. But there is a difference in the experience from our perspective, right? And that's going back to the Tsim Tsum conversation we've had in the past where God hides himself. He's not hidden, but to our perspective, he seems hidden. And he will allow us to better experience him, perhaps. um, When we open ourselves up, then take take a look on 654, the second bold paragraph, it's the middle of the page. And the difference between the upper and lower worlds is not in the presence of the essential core light itself, because again, God is infinite and everywhere but in the flow of energy from the blessed infinite light to the extent to which the blessed infinite one flows and shines light openly from its prior concealment. And that flow is more in the upper worlds than the lower and heaven. There's more light that's revealed and earth in our realms. There's less light that's revealed. There's less experience. There's less inspiration, but he's equally present.
2: So, you know, when I think about this, um, I kind of liken it to an awareness or a connection meaning like okay God is everywhere um God is outside in my front yard right now but I'm not there I'm in here so he's everywhere but I don't feel his presence there because I'm not there however you know we're all talking we're all talking together Hashem is at the center of our discussions so he's present here and now, so I I feel this exactly
0: right. In other words, experientially,
2: experientially. Right. He He's everywhere. I know he's outside, but I'm not outside. So he doesn't feel present to me outside because I'm not outside. But he feels present here with us as we're talking about Hashem. Right.
0: Right. Right. Exactly. You know, th- think about um, a difficult question in trigonometry. And you have, you know, you have two rooms one with a group of mathematical professors and one with a group of six-year-olds together with rabbi josh pretty much the same um (laughs) they only teach us math and multiples of 18 of high that way we can no (laughs) okay base 19 so actually
2: (laughs) if you think about it josh that works out well in trigonometry because Does it, I, eighteen times ten is one hundred and eighty degrees. Like eighteen is one hundred and eighty. That that's perfect for you know trigonometry, right? So so you're you're right there.
0: You know when it comes to trigonometry, other than the pronunciation, and even then I'm not. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> so uh, imagine you have two rooms, one with mathematical professors, and one with mathematical ignoramuses and somebody pre, pre, uh, presents a difficult question in trigonometry to both rooms where will the 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 existence of trigonometry is present everywhere but in terms of how it's understood well in one room it's understood better than the other right but it is everywhere so sure. god is everywhere but where is he going to be experienced? That's going to vary from location to location. And to, to bottom line, our behavior. <laughs> That's the bottom line.
1: So can you make anywhere holy by experiencing God or doing a mitzvah, communicating with God? Or can only sanctified places be holy?
0: A, excellent question. Excellent question.
1: Not so in the book.
0: Well, we, you you can actually make anywhere holy. You could. You can make anywhere holy. How you do that is going to depend on the situation. But here's how you make anything holy. Anything that we meant, we cited this in chapter six. Anything that centers around God, God rests there. You know, somebody once asked Rabbi Menachem Mendel of Kutsk. He was a Hasidic uh, Rebbe. At the turn of the 20th century, and they asked him, Rabbi, where is God? Where can I find God? So he said, wherever you allow him to be. Because God is everywhere, but where are we going to experience him? Or anywhere, wherever we allow him to be. Now, if, our, if we are centering ourselves around God, he will be experienced. If we are centering ourselves around ourselves, he won't be experienced in Tanya lingo. If we are employing the animal soul. Centering ourselves around ourselves, right, using the comfortable uncomfortable paradigm, he will, he will not be experienced if we are using the divine soul paradigm, he, he will be experienced now. How he's going to be experienced is going to vary. You could pray anywhere and experience God there. It doesn't have to be in a synagogue. Um, Sharon, you mentioned the bathroom. You could actually, this is going to sound funny, but you could experience God in the bathroom. Um, You know, they say a joke where this (laughs) this guy, (laughs) I'm going to get in trouble for this one. This guy, this kid growing up thought that God was in the bathroom because whenever he used to spend a lot of time in the bathroom and his mother would say oh god get out of there already okay that's a corny joke i do not to use that one of the what
1: it was a good one
0: <laughs> um but god could be experienced in the bathroom and the, because the which is god's desires god's will um encompasses all areas of life there is a godly way to go to the bathroom right as you see in maimonides david and in the studies of maimonides of the rambam the torah's laws and god's will covers every area of life not just religious life but legal areas of life ethical areas of life cleanliness every area of life i was was reading a story in the talmud I found this to be a fascinating story this rabbi uh, sorry not a rabbi but a young student in the ages of the talmud so going back 1500 years ago maybe he was um in school studying torah and he's playing hooky his father who was a prominent rabbi in his own right says hey What are you playing hockey for? Go to school. He says, We're not really learning anything. We're not learning anything. I know your rabbi is a scholar. Are you not learning anything? He says, Well, what he's, you know, he's kind of just rambling. He's not really teaching Torah. What are you talking about? What's he teaching you? So he starts going into detail what they're learning in class and the laws of how to efficiently and in a healthy way go to the bathroom according to Torah law and what to do if somebody's experiencing this issue and that issue he says he's just rambling he's not teaching us the torah he says no no you go there this is your health and your health is a prominent part of the torah you go back to class this is important because it's torah it's a part of torah and encompasses to a part of torah but every there's a there's a torah way to do everything in life sometimes the way you're going to bring god somewhere by the way is by being passive Eating on Shabbat, that's proactive, you're bringing God to your Shabbat table. But refraining from eating not kosher, by not doing something, you're bringing God there. Sometimes it's gonna be through doing, sometimes it's gonna be through not doing. There's a great story, another story. Two brothers, Reb Zusha and Rebeli melech Reb Zusha from Anapoli, Rebeli melech from Luzhinsk. They were brothers. They were colleagues to the uh, with the author of the Tanya, actually. In fact, Rabzusha wrote in the beginning of the Tanya a um, a forward. Wrote a forward in the beginning of the Tanya. You see it. So these two brothers were imprisoned in Tsarist Russia because practicing Judaism and trying to get others to practice it and being passionate about it, big sins, big crimes. They're in prison and they're in this decrepit cell and the cell has a chamber pot for when they need the bathroom. One of the brothers wakes up in the morning and begins to cry. His brother says, then why are you crying? Says, there's a chamber pot here and Well, if there's a chamber pot here used for the bathroom, we can't pray. It's forbidden to pray in a bathroom and for all intents and purposes, according to Jewish law, this cell now classifies as a bathroom, we're not allowed to pray. And I can't pray to God, I'm sad. So the brother says to him, who said you can't pray? God did. Okay, so why are you sad? (laughs) The same God who wants you to normally pray right now wants you to not pray. We should celebrate. As much as you would celebrate the fact that you get to pray, you should celebrate the fact that you're not praying. All of a sudden the brothers start dancing. They break into a Hasidic dance. The warden, the prison warden comes and sees that they're excited and has no idea why they're dancing around a chamber pot but he says, no being happy here, he confiscates the chamber pot and now they're able to pray. But all that to say, can God be brought anywhere? The answer is yes. But sometimes it's gonna be through doing something and sometimes it's gonna be through doing nothing. And the deciding factor is, does it center around him, around his will? Going back to the month of Elul, by the way, the month we find ourselves in. The king is in the field. Now is an excellent time where God is more accessible than usual, where we can just go to him. Um, I, I think the most important shift of this chapter so far that we're learning, and, and the truth is, this is really the whole Tanya, but we see it a lot here in this chapter more explicitly. God is not looking down from heaven. He's right here with us. Well, I don't see him. Okay, but that's my problem. (laughs) That doesn't change reality. It doesn't affect the reality. He's here. And if I allow myself, I can experience him. And now in the month of Elul, he's here in a much more open way. And the analogy is he's in the field, not in the palace. Not everybody could go into the palace so easily. But everybody could go to the field and experience it. So is that to say then that
2: there's a different level of simsum during the month of Elul that makes it easier to connect with Hashem?
0: Sort of. There, um, there's a higher level of revelation that kind of bypasses the simsum. So lo- look at it this way. Look at it this way. What what's being revealed oh, in in classic biblical language and kabbalistic language, God reveals his 12 attributes of mercy, uh, 13 attributes of mercy. You know the the attributes of mercy that we sing on on Yom Kippur Hashem, Hashem, Kel Bechadu. So that's being revealed during the month of Elul. What that means practically is normally when we do something wrong. If you were to, let's say, let us say I were to have, well, let's say, somebody transgressed. We'll keep it abstract. Somebody were to have transgressed the mitzvah. They've isolated themselves from God to a degree because God wanted something, and they de, they neglected. God's will. But when God reveals his 13 attributes of mercy, what he's saying is, hey, you and my will had a falling out, but you could still connect with me. With who I am. There's a certain revelation that kind of bypasses the symptom. Um, in, In a... It's, it's such a high revelation, by the way, that it's casual. We won't realize it unless we open our eyes. Right? You realize, you know when it's Yom Kippur. You feel it. You feel that it's Yom Kippur. You feel that I got to be a little bit different today. You don't feel right away that it's Elul unless the environment tells you so in the same way. Because it's such a high revelation. We have to allow ourselves to experience it. Not gonna happen. It's so infinite that it's not going to phase the finite unless the finite wants to be phased. Make sense? let's Let's take a look inside. Let's take a look on page six fifty five. We're almost at the end here. Okay, so what we said earlier is that the light, God is everywhere, but the light is going to ex- be experienced to varying degrees. Um, 655, and this flow of light from God energizes the worlds and create and, and creatures found there. The higher world's receiving a little more disclosure than the ones below. All the... Uh, creatures in these worlds are receiving a different amount of light according to their capabilities and disposition. So there's an individualized flow of blessed infinite light flowing and shining fitting it's uh, each recipient, fitting the recipient's capabilities in this position. God doesn't, you know, God is emet, God is truth and truth can't conform to anything. But how the truth is interpreted and experienced can conform. Which could be dangerous, by the way, right? The danger, there is a danger of making Judaism and making God meaningful. There is a risk there. It has to be done carefully. But if done carefully and done correctly, God is very meaningful, very personal, right? And what we're about to say right now, the lowest of worlds, the next bold paragraph, but the lowest of worlds, even the spiritual ones, don't receive so much disclosure of light. The higher level of worlds, the higher realms, the high heavens will have more light. doesn't mean God's more present. He's more experienced. He's more felt. But he's equally everywhere. In our realms, he's less felt. And the reason is, take a look at the next bold paragraph, right where it says 27th of E.R., right under that. Starts with and. And the filters through which the blessed infinite one filters and hides his light and energy from the lower worlds become progressively so strong and powerful. To the point that where this physical world of inanimate inanimate matter is created and which God's light can't be discerned at all. God hides himself so well, he does such a good job to the point that what seems like reality is what our eyes tell us. And what um, our, our eyes tell us the physical world is the reality because of the tzimtzum. One of the reasons why we hear the shofar in Rosh Hashanah coming up, the, the truth is that there's no mitzvah to blow the shofar. The mitzvah is to hear the shofar. Right, The blessing on the shofar, if you look in the Siddur, he has sanctified us, command us with his mitzvahs. We don't say to blow the shofar, we say to hear the shofar. The mitzvah is to hear it. So if you were to wear earplugs and blow the shofar, you didn't necessarily fulfill the mitzvah. Because the mitzvah is to hear. And there's a deep message there. Because of the tzimtzum, because God hides himself, And that's part of the soul being hidden by the animal soul. It's the same parallel. We take what our eyes tell us for granted as reality. And on Rosh Hashanah, we say, no, it's enough. Stop trusting our eyes and let's listen. Let's listen to something deeper. Because when you hear, there's a greater depth beyond what you see. That's why when we say the Shema prayer, hear, O Israel, listen. To hear, what do we do when we say the Shema? When we tell ourselves to hear that the Lord is our God, the Lord is one, what do we do? We cover our eyes. Exactly. We're reminding ourselves there's so much more than what our eyes are going to tell us. We have to listen. We have to discover a much greater depth. Okay, that's my story. I'm sticking to it.